Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the TARDIS crew as they face seaweed in Fury from the Deep. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, some prominent characters and give our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion with us, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. First though, the story recap, as told by yours truly. Episode 1. Near a large cliff-top seaside refinery, the TARDIS materialises above the water and gently touches down on its surface. The crew then board an inflatable dinghy and row their way to the shore. The Doctor announces that they have arrived in England at an unknown time, which causes Jamie and Victoria to say that the TARDIS must be broken as it keeps returning to the same country. The Doctor doesn't answer and instead moves towards several large mounds of foam a bit further down the beach. The trio then get into the playful foam fight before Jamie notices a large pipe coming from the cliff face that he says must be the source of the foam. They go to investigate it and see that it is a gas main and the Doctor notices a large black box attached to the pipe. He then uses a small device called a sonic screwdriver to open the bolts on the box via sound waves and peer inside but there seems to be nothing extraordinary about the interior. He then hears a low rumbling noise and takes out a stethoscope to listen to the pipe. Victoria urges them to move away as she feels they are being watched and so they walk back down the shoreline. Her suspicions prove to be accurate as they are indeed being viewed through a monitor with a crosshair on it. The viewer then manoeuvres the crosshair to target each of them and fires a ray that renders them all unconscious. In a strange room, each of the trio slowly regains consciousness but find themselves tied to chairs. A couple of guards wearing helmets with face shields then enter the room and the doctor asks where they are. The guards ignore them and another two men enter, saying that they will be the ones asking the questions instead. The doctor points out that they are not much shape to answer due to the debilitating effects of the ray that struck them down, and one of the men administers an aerosol to them that seems to instantaneously revive them. The other man, whose name is Robson, demands to know why they are in a restricted area sabotaging the pipeline, which belongs to the Euro Sea Gas Company. Victoria insists that they were lost and are not saboteurs. The first man, whose name is Harris, seems to be sympathetic towards them, but Robson coldly rebukes him and tells him to lock them away until he can question them later. Harris informs the travellers that there is an air of tension in the facility as one of their offshore rigs has mysteriously gone offline and there is no answer to their attempts to communicate. Victoria angrily says that this is no excuse for the way that they were captured and Harris again apologises for that and the fact that he must lock them up. As he leads them away, he leaves a briefcase he was carrying behind which is later picked up by an unseen person. At the security entrance to the facility, Harris's wife Maggie is detained at the security gate until she can produce her security pass. She tries to use her husband's position as the station's number two to force the guard to let her pass, but he insists that she return inside as he shuts the gates. In their room, Harris presses the travellers as to why they were tinkering with the box on the pipe, which he calls a pressure release valve. The doctor says that he was more concerned about the sounds he heard coming from the pipe, which he says sounded like movement. Harris is shocked by this as he insists that marine life can't get into the pipes, but Jamie and Victoria said that they heard the sound too. Harris again says it's impossible due to the amount of effort that was spent on the emergency systems in the pipes to prevent such an event. The doctor suggests that they shut off the gas so they can examine the pipe properly, but Harris says that Robson, who is the facility chief, would never allow it and says that Robson seems to be right in his estimation about them given the doctor's level of knowledge about the pipe infrastructure. In the control room, contact is re-established with the offshore rig, but the signal is weak and breaking up. The leader of the rig is very monotonous in his tone and his actions seem sluggish on the view screen. 
Robson asks if the emergency team he sent arrived, and the leader responds that they did, but they must stay on the rig due to an accident on it. The signal gets worse and worse despite the technicians, whose name is Price, attempts to improve it, and it finally cuts out, with the leader repeating that everything is fine. Robson tells Price to try and reach the rig again, and he then storms off angrily, where he is met by Harris, who suggests shutting off the gas, echoing the doctor's concerns. A report comes in that the gas pressure seems to be dropping every 20 minutes, but Robson is reluctant to listen to Harris's concerns, as he thinks Harris is implying that he can't do his job. However, he relents when Harris pleads with him to see reason, but he only agrees as he wants to use this opportunity to show up Harris. As they are talking, an unidentified technician removes several folders from Harris's briefcase. He comes back and says that the files may be at home, but again Robson is reluctant to let him go until Harris outright challenges him on his paranoia, saying that he can use it as an excuse to get rid of Harris. In their room, the travellers attempt to find a way out via the ventilation ducts. Jamie scouts ahead and overhears a conversation between Harris and Maggie when he runs into her in the outside corridor. He asks her to find the files and bring them to him in the main control room. The doctor then gives Jamie one final push through the vent and he lands in the corridor. However, it turns out to be a wasted effort as Victoria opens the door after successfully picking the lock. In their home, Maggie searches for the file and as she is looking for the right one, she opens one with a bit of seaweed in the middle of it that stings her. She takes it outside using the folder and throws it to the ground where it starts to ride around after she leaves. In one of the pump rooms, Robson is approached by a man named Van Lutyens who demands to know what is going on at the rig. He gives out to Robson for not informing him about the incident, citing the effect it could have on the morale of the workers on the other rigs, but Robson brushes him off. Van Lutyens tries to use his status as representative of the Dutch government to in- intimidate Robson, but Robson says that his own experience in the rigs is all he needs for the time being before walking away. Neither man notices their conversation being observed by the travellers. Robson is called by Price, who alerts him to an incoming call from the main control rig from its chief, a man named Baxter. Baxter says that there is a sound coming from the pipeline that he says sounds like a heartbeat. The doctor overhears this and says that he wants to go investigate the pipes, but tells Victoria to wait for him and Jamie back in the room. Jamie and Victoria share a parting sticking their tongues out at each other, but he fails to notice just how upset she is. After they go, she follows Aaron after them and enters a room where she hears a strange hissing sound coming from it. She enters and finds several oxygen cylinders that have been tampered with, causing her to cough and therefore not notice the gas mask wearing saboteur leave and lock the door behind her. The saboteur then tampers with the ventilation controls, opening them up fully. Back in the pump room, Harris returns and requests to be given time to look after Maggie, who is starting to feel ill, but Robson refuses saying that he should send for a doctor since their own one went out to the rig with the emergency team. Robson agrees to lower the security cordon so Harris can get a doctor. Elsewhere, the doctor and Jamie enter the impeller room, which controls the flow of incoming gas from the sea. They see a clear section of the pipe which shows what is coming from the outside and if there is any potential obstructions in the pipe, and they go to investigate it. In the cylinder room, Victoria tries to pick the lock of the door, but it is of no use. She then turns around and sees foam starting to pour into the room with tendrils of riding seaweed starting to come through as well. She calls out for the doctor and Jamie who hear her through the pipes and they rush to find her as the seaweed reaches out for her. Episode 2 The doctor and Jamie manage to unlock the door and pull Victoria back into the hallway, not noticing the foam or seaweed as it retreats back into the vents. Robson, Van Lutyens and the chief engineer arrive and Van Lutyens notices the smell of gas so Robson sends the chief engineer to investigate it. Victoria manages to catch her breath and she tearfully tells them about the seaweed creature coming through the vents. 
Robson ignores her story and accuses her of sabotage when Robson's assistant points out the damaged oxygen cylinders. Jamie insists that she is telling the truth as the door was locked from the outside. Van Luchin says that gas seems to be coming from the vents and Jamie wonders whoever locked her inside must be responsible for piping the gas into the room when Van Luchin points out the controls near the door. In their house, Harris tends to Maggie who complains of feeling ill and shows him her hand which shows no sign of the seaweed sting. However, she can't seem to recall exactly what happened to her and Harris puts her to bed but she is suddenly racked by convulsions. Harris goes to see if he can get her some help and as she lies down, her head is filled with the sound of rhythmic thumping which seems to be connected to the seaweed she left outside which starts to expand and emit foam. She looks out of the window and screams in terror as she sees it grow and locks herself into her room. A short while later, two maintenance workers arrive initially looking for Harris, but then they say they have been dispatched by Robson to carry out mandatory inspections of the kitchens. They introduce themselves as Oak and Quill, with Oak doing all the talking. Maggie notices that there is something not quite right about them, but lets them carry on with their task. She goes to lie down again and leaves them to carry on with their inspection. However, their purpose is soon revealed when Oak releases some seaweed from his sleeve into the apartment. He then checks on the growing mass out in the backyard before turning his attention to the bedroom. He and Quill then approach Maggie and open their mouths and begin to emit a strange hissing sound. Maggie tries to scream in terror but begins to choke on a gas that emits from their mouths which causes her to pass out. In the pump room, Robson and Van Luchens are informed that the pressure in the pipes is dangerously low and Robson orders a system diagnostic. The doctor enters and informs him of the strange thumping sounds he heard both in the main pipe and the beach pipe and Van Luchens comments that this correlates to the reports from the other offshore rigs. Robson tries to explain it away as a potential fault along the pipeline, but the doctor insists that it doesn't sound like a technical fault and suggests turning off the gas flow to see if there is any marine life stuck in the pipe. Van Nuchens agrees with the doctor, but Robson refuses to turn off the gas flow to investigate. In the control room, Price is giving Jamie and Victoria a virtual tour of the complex and explains to them how the rig system works. Harris comes in and asks if the base doctor has returned, and when he is told no, he goes to ask the doctor for assistance. Robson initially refuses to let him go, but gives him one hour when Harris threatens to hold him responsible if anything happens to his wife. After they leave with Jamie and Victoria, the chief engineer reports to Van Luchens that while the pressure coming in is dropping, the pressure leaving the rigs themselves is close to blowing due to some sort of blockage. Van Luchens reports this to Robson, who still refuses to stop the gas and instead orders the release valves to be opened to siphon off some of the pressure. This proves to be successful, which leads to a brief gloating session from Robson, but it doesn't last long when Price informs them that they have lost contact with another rig. Van Luchens points out that Robson's stubbornness has gotten them into the situation, and he angrily berates him when Robson mocks him and Harris's scientific assessment of the situation. The fight is broken up when the chief engineer alerts him to the fact that the impeller has come to a halt. They then hear the thumping sound coming from inside it. Back at the Harris house, Harris and the travellers enter the hallway and immediately begin to choke on the gas. Harris sees Maggie pass out on the floor and the doctor and Jamie throw a chair through the bedroom window to allow fresh air into the room. The doctor points out that the gas in the room is the same as the one in the oxygen room and he says it is toxic in nature. Harris tells them what happened to her and Victoria notices a small clump of seaweed under the dresser. The doctor suggests that maybe the seaweed was intended for Harris which leads the scientist to recall that he had actually placed the file he had asked Maggie to find in his briefcase. He then wonders why someone would target him in such a strange way. Victoria voices her disgust at the seaweed, but Jamie says that she didn't react the same way when she saw it down by the pipe on the beach, but she counters by saying that that stuff wasn't moving. 
Back in the pump room, Van Lutchens tries to get the chief engineer to investigate the pipeline for blockages, but he refuses to do so without Robson's approval first, citing his respect and loyalty to him after years of working together. Van Lutchens apologises and then asks him to go to Robson and present Van Lutchens' theory about the blockage location as his own. However, Robson sees through this and attempts to eject Van Lutchens from the base, but gets him to listen to the thumping sound coming from the impeller, saying that something is alive down there. Episode 3 in the Harris home, the doctor tells Jamie to step back from the seaweed and he places it in a bag so he can examine it later. Harris asks if Maggie will be okay and the doctor says that she should be fine so long as she receives proper medical treatment. Harris goes to the medical centre and when Jamie asks about their prisoner status in the base, the doctor says that they don't have time to waste and ushers them back to the TARDIS. After they leave, a clump of the seaweed starts to emerge from Maggie's sleeve. Back at the TARDIS, the Doctor is running experiments with natural gas on a piece of the seaweed, whilst Victoria runs another piece of it through a Bunsen burner test. She shows him her results and he states that the weed is capable of emitting a toxic gas. Jamie then brings their attention to another sample under the nearby microscope, saying that he can see something moving in the weed. Both he and Victoria take a look at it and the Doctor marvels at the discovery, whilst Victoria informs Jamie that the weed is actually alive. In the base, Robson seems to hear the sound, but when Van Lutchen tries to get him to see reason, he reverts back to his initial stance that it is a technical fault and instructs the technicians to get him back to, to work repairing it. Harris arrives at the control room after brushing past Van Lutchen's and gets Price to try and summon for medical aid. Robson belittles the situation, but Harris ignores him and says the situation is serious. Robson then notices that the travellers are missing and he then berates Harris for leaving them unattended, saying that they could be causing untold damage to the installation. Harris tells him that he is being paranoid, and the two start a shouting match before the chief technician summons them both to say that the impeller is working again. However, the victory proves to be brief as it shuts down again, leading to an angry outburst from Robson. Van Lutchens cuts across his ranting and says that there is something up causing the problems with the machinery, and he needs to accept them. Robson instead storms off and tells technicians to get the impeller back working in 30 minutes. Van Lutchens begs Harris to take over, saying that his wife will soon be looked after by the medical team. Harrison asks the chief for his input and he tells them that Van Lutchen's presence is what's causing Robson's animosity, but Van Lutchen retorts that Robson is ignoring everything that is going on, both in the base and out on the rigs, and the advice that he's been given. After a few moments taught, the chief engineer agrees to help him. Back on the TARDIS, the doctor is pouring through a book of marine wildlife legends. He finds one entry that matches the description of the creature that Victoria saw in the oxygen room. Jamie then starts to cough and they all notice that the room is filling with gas emanating from the seaweed. It tries to crawl out of the tank that it is in, but it retreats when Victoria screams at it seeing it moving. The doctor and Jamie manage to put the lid on it, and the doctor says that it is the seaweed that is inside the pipe, feeding off the gas and producing its own toxic version. He says they need to get back to the base, and as they leave, he wonders why it retreated into the tub. Back at the control room, Harris Van Lutchens and the chief engineer confront Robson, but he flies into a rage and gives a hysterical rant about them conspiring against him before storming out of the room. After he leaves, Van Lutchens goes to Price to contact The Hague so he can update them. Meanwhile, Robson goes back to his room where he fixes himself before going into bed. A short while later, Quill appears and locks him into his room before tampering with the ventilator controls. Robson's room starts to fill with toxic gas as a large clump of seaweed forces its way through the vents to land on top of him. He manages to tear it off him and tears his way out of the room, bursting past Harris who has come to get his sign off for something. After he's gone, Harris looks into the room and recoils in horror. He rushes to find Van Lutchen's, but when they get back there, there's only a small amount of foam left. 
Much to Harris's relief though, Van Lutyens believes the story and says they need to find Robson and instructs Harris to take over the base until further notice. The travellers arrive back at the Harris home and they notice the smell of gas and split up to find its source. Victoria goes to see if Maggie is okay and is horrified to see her room filled with foam and seaweed. She screams as several tendrils reach out for her but they retreat again as she screams and they along with the foam leave via the broken window from earlier. The doctor takes Maggie's absence from the room to be that she was taken for medical treatment but before he can try to confirm this he and Victoria hear Jamie call out for help. They rush back into the kitchen and see him dangling from the skylight trying to avoid the foam and seaweed surrounding him from below. The doctor and Victoria rush outside where they see more foam and seaweed approach but they rush up the steps at the back of the house to access the roof. They manage to pull Jamie up just before the tendrils of seaweed latch onto him. They then escape and take a breather in the hallway where Victoria starts to question their way of life but stops before she can say anything meaningful. In the control room, Harris sends out a security alert to find Robson and orders Price to close all external ventilator pipes. Harris then goes to speak with his superiors in London and he returns a short while later and informs Van Lutyens that a delegation of his superiors will be arriving within three hours time. The two men start to discuss what the creature could possibly be just as the doctor and the others arrive. The doctor informs them that it is the seaweed that is plaguing them, but it is sentient and can defend itself by either emitting the toxic gas or physically assaulting people. Harris shows concern about his wife and asks Price to get a status report from the medical centre. As he is waiting, he informs the doctor about Robson, but their conversation about him is cut short when Price says that they haven't collected Maggie yet. This leads the doctor to panickingly retell the events in the Harris house and Harris rushes off to find her. On the shoreline, a seaweed-covered Maggie is approached by Robson, who she informs that there is very little time and that he must obey. He agrees to this and then watches as she walks into the ocean and disappears beneath the waves. Episode 4 Price reports that a third rig has gone offline and the doctor urges Van Lutyens to send someone to go investigate, but he says only Harris has, now has the authority to do that but he hasn't returned from looking for Maggie. In the pump room, the chief engineer and his staff are starting to flag due to exhaustion, but the thumping of the pipe starts again, which forces them to keep working. In one of the bunk rooms, Victoria tries to talk to Jamie about her earlier comments about the uncertain nature of their travels, but stops when she realises that his enthusiasm for their way of life might lead to an argument, and instead she turns her thoughts to the seaweed and its strange and mysterious nature. She starts to panic when she realises that it had touched her earlier and jumps in fright when the door opens but relaxes when she sees it as the doctor. Jamie has fallen back asleep and she, so he joins in her in her discussion about the seaweed and plans to combat it. She grows angry when he says that they haven't come up with a solution yet and then laments the fact that no matter where they go they always encounter violence and the doctor looks at her in sadness. On the beach, Harris finds Robson and asks him if he has seen Maggie. Robson says that he will find her very soon before walking back towards the installation. Back in the pump room, the doctor and the chief engineer try to dissuade Van Lutyens from going down into the pipe to investigate the blockage, but he says that he needs to do something. They reluctantly watch as he descends into the pipe and wish him good luck. He makes his way down to the various levels of the pipe, and his torch runs out just as he approaches the ladder descending to another level. Suddenly, he is attacked by tendrils of seaweed from the level below, and even though he tries to fight it off, he is pulled into the foam. His screams are heard by the others, and the doctor says that they need to go after him, but Victoria and Jamie try to dissuade him from going, but to no avail, and so Jamie reluctantly agrees to accompany him. Harris returns to the control room and asks Price if there is any news about Maggie, but there is nothing. Price then tells him that the delegation from London, led by Chief Executive Megan Jones, has just arrived and is on its way into the installation. Harris then asks about Van Lutyens and is told that he is in the pump room. 
He arrives just as Victoria informs the chief engineer about the doctor and Jamie going down into the pipe, and together they uh, bring him up to speed. Harris orders the lift carrying them to be brought up, but the lift operators, who happen to be Quill and Oak, say that they can't. Price then messages him to say that Jones and her assistant Perkins have entered the complex, and so Harris takes the chief engineer to go greet them, leaving Victoria in the pump room with Oak and Quill. They inform Jones and Perkins about the seaweed creature, but she is completely sceptical of their claims, thinking that Harris is under stress from the situation with Maggie and his temperamental relationship with Robson. She then orders him to send someone to investigate the offline rigs, but refuses to let him request aid from the Defence Forces and instead instructs him to use the installation helicopters. She then asks to speak to Robson, but he says that he is not well and can't give an adequate explanation as to what is wrong with him. In the pipe, the Doctor and Jamie find Van Lutchen's torch and they see foam start to rise from the level below and they race back to the lift as the seaweed starts to pursue them. They press the lift recall button as the lift has been brought back up by Oak and Quill, who then leave the room. They narrowly manage to escape by climbing up the maintenance ladder back up to the pump room. As they catch their breath, they notice that Victoria is missing and decide to split up to look for her. Back in the control room, Harris reports that the helicopter pilots have all reported the same thing, that each of the offline rigs are surrounded by foam and seaweed with no signs of life on them. Harris requests permission to rescue the men from the remaining rigs and then destroy the offline ones. Perkins says that it's impossible, but Joan silences him as she contemplates the extent of the setback it would cause. Suddenly, Robson bursts into the room and hysterically says that they can't destroy the rigs, his paranoia making him believe that it is a conspiracy to undo his life's work. He suddenly calms down and seems to forget what he has said before suddenly wandering off. The others wonder what could have happened to him. The doctor arrives and tells them about Van Lutchen's and what they found in the pipe. He says that Robson seems to be under the control of the seaweed and Harris convinces Jones to listen to him. He tells them that the seaweed's parasitic nature has allowed it to take over Robson and potentially several other personnel on the base. Suddenly, a call comes in from Baxter on the main control rig and he says that they are surrounded and under assault by the seaweed and they watch as it bursts into the office and attacks him. Jamie eventually finds Victoria lying unconscious in the impeller room. He tries to rouse her, saying that he will never forgive himself if something has happened to her. She slowly comes to and she says that Oak and Quill must have brought her there. She again bemoans the fact that they are constantly in danger and says she is fed up and just wants some peace and quiet. She says that it has nothing to do with Jamie and the doctor before she can say any more, Jamie points out the thumping sound and shows her a part of the seaweed creature moving through the pipeline. They rush back to the control room where the doctor is expressing the theory that the seaweed is using the rigs and the installation to create the centre of a hive that would eventually spread from Britain to encompass the whole globe. They then tell the doctor what they saw in the impeller room and everyone rushes back to see the seaweed continue move through the pipeline, with the doctor calling it the advance guard for the coming invasion. Episode 5 Everyone returns to the control room, where Price says that they have lost contact with all the rigs. Harris urges the destruction of all the rigs, but the Doctor advises against it, saying that it would make the seaweed harder to target. They start to discuss the origin of the seaweed, with the Doctor saying that it was most likely brought up from its resting place via the offshore drilling. Harris says that if that was the case, then it would have been reported by the engineers as a potential blockage, but the Doctor reminds him of the parasitic nature of the seaweed, and says that the engineers were most likely possessed by the seaweed after touching it. The Doctor then points out that it seems to be mostly targeting high-ranking officials in various rigs and in the installation. Jones says they need to find Robson ASAP as he could be a security threat. Harris orders the security guards to find Robson and then hold him in his cabin. He then mentions Victoria's early encounter in the oxygen cylinder room and together he and the Doctor come to the conclusion that the pure oxygen could be a potential deterrent against the seaweed. 
Price reports that the guards have found Robson and Jones demands to see him, saying she may be able to convince him to help. As they're making their way towards his cabin, Perkins urges Jones to call in the defence forces, but she says that they wouldn't be able to combat the seaweed and she agrees with the doctor's theory that destroying the rigs could make things worse. They arrive at the cabin and Jones insists on going in alone. Inside she finds Robson in a deep sleep on his bed. She implores him to fight against the control of the seaweed, but he passes out again. She tries a different tactic and takes a more authoritative approach, which seems to work, but he is still not fully lucid, and so Harris takes her away again. Not too long after they leave, Robson, who like Oak has started to grow seaweed on his body, responds to an unheard voice and attacks the guard stationed outside his room, knocking him unconscious with the gas from his mouth. As this is going on, Oak and Quill approach the oxygen room wearing gas masks. In the control room, Jamie comments to Victoria that the doctor looks worried and she suggests retreating to the TARDIS, but Jamie says the doctor would never let people in peril. Harris and the others return back to the control room and when they ask what is the next step of the invasion, the doctor says the seaweed will most likely attack them there. He says that they should prepare to strike first and Jones suggests placing the oxygen room under guard. However, Price says that all the oxygen cylinders have been emptied and this seems to confirm the doctor's theory that some of the staff at the installation may be under the control of the seaweed. Just at that moment, Oak and Quill arrive, but leave again when they lock eyes with Victoria. She points this out to Jamie, and they set off after the duo, giving chase when they run away. Jamie manages to catch Quill and tries to knock him out, but to no avail. Quill then uses his gas brush to assault Jamie, and Victoria screams out, which seems to affect Quill, allowing Jamie to knock him to the ground. The Doctor and Harris arrive, and the Doctor notices that it was Victoria's scream that seemed more effective than Jamie's McCrimmon punch. But before he can elaborate, he is called back to the impeller room, and the others follow on with none of them noticing Robson stalking them. They are joined by Jones and Perkins, and they watch as more seaweed advances through the pipe. As they are watching it, Robson sneaks up in Victoria and takes her away with no one noticing. Moments later, the seaweed bursts through the transparent section of the pipe, flooding the room with gas and foam, and using its tendrils to pull a technician into the advancing foam bank. The doctor clears everyone out of the room, but then he and Jamie notice Victoria is missing. They barely manage to escape as the doctor holds open one of the sealant doors for Jamie, and once they are through, they split to look up for Victoria. Robson exits the installation with the unconscious Victoria and speeds off in a nearby jeep. He takes her to the nearby helicopter depot and hijacks one of the vehicles, with the ground crew alerting the installation to the event. The doctor tries to reason with him to return Victoria, but Robson cuts across him and says that if he wants to save her, then he needs to come over to us. Left with no other choice, he turns to Harris to request the use of another helicopter, but Jones tries to stop it, believing he's far more valuable to them than chasing Robson. However, the doctor points out that this may be the best chance to find the nerve centre of the seaweed, and Harris gives permission to follow on. Price communicates to the doctor and Jamie that Robson has been sighted approaching the control rig, and so they set off in pursuit. As they approach the rig, Jamie points out a large mass of foam, and the doctor says that it is most likely the nerve centre, and so they land and begin to make their way through the rig. Jamie notices how quiet it is, and wonders if Victoria is actually there. Suddenly, they hear her muffled screams, but the doctor stops Jamie from rushing off to find her, saying that it could be a trap. They continue to warily make their way through the rig, and eventually enter the central node, where they encounter Robson and the other captured personnel who are now covered in even more seaweed, amidst a large bank of foam. Robson tells the duo that they have been waiting for the Doctor. Episode 6 Robson says that the Doctor will help their new masters colonise the Earth. As they are talking, Jamie hears Victoria calling out for him, and he goes to find her. 
The doctor tries to break through to Robson, but to no avail, and he attacks the doctor with his gas breath. Jamie and Victoria return, and she screams in fright, causing the captured humans to recoil in pain. The doctor urges her to scream more, and Robson and the others retreat to the foam, allowing them to escape. Once outside, they signal the circling helicopter, but the pilot can't see them. They spot Robson's helicopter nearby covered in foam, and the doctor gleefully says that he will fly them to safety. They manage to get off the rig and narrowly manage to avoid several large tendrils of seaweed that attempt to batter them from the sky. Despite his claims that it is the primitive machine, the doctor struggles to pilot the helicopter, but he is eventually aided by the other helicopter pilot who gives him instructions on how to operate and safely land the vehicle. Back in the control room, Harris is eager to start the evacuation process, but Jones says that the doctor still has 10 minutes from the time allotted to him to, re- to return. Harris says that without fresh supplies of oxygen, they won't be able to combat the seaweed, and Jones instructs Perkins to send out a red alert that all available oxygen tankers and canisters be brought to the base. Even with this, Harris says that they won't arrive in time due to the rapid advance of the seaweed, and he asks her how they will fight it if it manages to enter the control room. The travellers arrive and recount what happened on the rig with Robson, as well as telling Harris they saw no sign of Maggie. They do have good news, however, and say that prior to coming back to the base, they went to the nearby medical facility where Quill was taken, and the doctor says that he seems to have been completely recovered as the seaweed attached him died due to the sound frequency caused by Victoria's screaming. He asks Harris for some time to implement a new plan based on this, but he is reluctant to give it. The doctor explains that if they can transmit the sound frequency through the pipes back to the main control rig, then they have a chance to destroy the nerve centre of the seaweed. Harris weighs up the risks and the benefits of the plan and agrees to give the doctor the time he wants. The doctor gets Victoria to record her screaming, but as they are preparing, the chief engineer enters and informs him that the seaweed is bursting up from the impeller shaft into the main pipe room. Harris and the others attempt to barricade the doors to buy Victoria time, but it is of no use, and Harris rushes back to order the evacuation. Meanwhile, after a brief moment of hesitation, Victoria manages to record her scream, which is then placed on a loop in a tape recorder that the doctor then starts to tinker with. He rigs up a device that will act as a sonic cannon that will send a concentrated beam of the frequency down the pipeline to the main control rig, which he theorizes will destroy the nerve center of the seaweed. However, Price shows them on the monitor that several seaweed creatures are advancing on the control room through multiple corridors, and the doctor connects several portable speakers to his device to act as sound guns, which he then hands out to the assembled guards and technicians. The creatures break into the control room, and the doctor orders Price to turn on the recording, but he is frozen in fear, forcing the doctor to dash to the control panel and turn it on himself. The creatures are destroyed, as is the nerve center, and Jones thanks the doctor for his help. The doctor then notices a visibly upset Victoria and asks her what is wrong, and she starts to break down, but Harris calls out that they are receiving a signal from the main control rig and that it's Robson and Maggie, who are now back to normal. They informed him that all the other infected people have recovered, and Harris then orders the helicopters to go collect them. Later, at the Harris residence, the travellers and Robson are treated to a lavish meal by Harris and Maggie. Robson and Harris have mended their relationship, and Robson apologises to the doctor before thanking Maggie for the meal and preparing to leave. He then asks the doctor if they are staying, but he replies that they aren't, and Robson says that they are always welcome back. The doctor and Jamie then notice that Victoria has been oddly quiet, and the doctor realises that she wants to stay behind, much to the shock of Jamie. She apologises to him, but he says that she must do what she thinks is best, and he asks Harris if they would mind looking after her. The doctor says that they will stay another day, but he tells Jamie that they cannot influence Victoria's decision. However, later Jamie meets Victoria out on the patio, and he asks if she is sure about staying behind. She says that there is nothing left for her in her own time, 
and he gives her a kiss on the head before going to bed for the night. The next morning, Victoria bids a tearful goodbye to Jamie and the Doctor. Once they are back on board the TARDIS, the Doctor asks Jamie where he would like to go next, but the despondent young Highlander says that he couldn't care less. As he starts the dematerialization process, a sorrowful Doctor reminds Jamie that he cared for her as well. Outside, Victoria waves goodbye to the TARDIS as it fades from sight. End of the story. So, now that the story has uh, come and gone and we have said goodbye to Victoria for now, uh, we will hand it over to Trivia's... Trivia... Yeah, that's what I said. Trivia's Trisha Spot. <laughs> Trisha's <laughs> Trivia Spot. Cool. So, Fury from the Deep. The air date for the story is the 16th of March, the 20th of April, 1968. The writer for the story is Victor Pemberton. This is the only on-screen writing credit for Victor. However, he did also write the audio story, Doctor Who and the Pescatons, which was a BBC audio story, I believe. It wasn't a big finish. It was before that. Yeah. And he also wrote the novelizations for Fury from the Deep and Pescatons. And Pescatons is a Doc Tom and Sarah Jane adventure, I think. Yes, it is. And I own it. <laughs> because of course I do. Of course I do. <laughs> Victor based Oak and Quill on Laurel and Hardy because he'd actually met them before and so that's who he based those characters on. Yeah, there's huge vibes of Laurel and Hardy like, you know, because you've got the very thin one, you've got the very large one. Mm. Victor is the first writer for Who to have also have an acting credit on the show. He was also in the moon base where he played Jules. Now, over the years, there's going to be a couple more writers who have this um, sort of double booking. Mark Gattis being one of them, probably the most prominent in New Who that people can think of. But it's a couple over the years. But Jules, is, or Jules, <laughs> Victor was the first. And he's also the only one who acted first and wrote later. The rest of them did their writing first and then acted later. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Victor passed away back in 2017. The director for the story is Hugh David. We have mentioned Hugh before. He directed The Highlanders. This is his final Doctor Who edit. And we discussed at the time with The Highlanders that he's one of very few directors where all of his stuff is missing. Hmm. Um, Obviously, with this story, we have an option to watch it. And with The Highlanders, obviously, we had Loose Cannon. Thank you very much to the guys again. But none of his stuff exists in the archives, which... I, I, every time I read something like that of like an actor or a director for Doctor Who where none of their stuff exists, it's always so heart-wrenching. It is because I would say a large quantity of the time, that stuff is some fantastic stuff. Mm. Uh, and Hugh passed away back in 1987. So even if any of this stuff was rediscovered now, he doesn't get to watch people enjoy his stories, which yeah. I find very sad. This story actually had a different working title. It was originally called The Colony of Devils. Unsurprisingly, the BBC were a little bit concerned about that name and decided against it. Having devils in the programme aimed at family audiences at this point in time yeah. was a no-go. Devils will crop up eventually, but not right now. Yeah, like in a couple of years and whatnot. <laughs> As I mentioned, no episodes of this story exist in the BBC archive and it's the last story to be completely missing. So 
to the last story where not a single episode is in the archive. Mm. However, in 2020, the BBC did release a complete animation of the story on DVD and Blu-ray. The story features the first appearance of the sonic screwdriver. Yay. Which is a screwdriver mm-hmm. that uses sonic waves to unscrew things. As opposed to being basically a Swiss Army knife. I was actually... I always thought again, like, oh yeah, it's used as a screwdriver the whole way. And like then it knew who it became, like this sort of, like, you know, MacGyver of, you know, technological DIY devices. But no, I think actually still in, in Trouton's run, it like it becomes a sort of a multi-purpose get-out-of-jail-free card. You know? I don't think it's a scanner, though. No, no. I think that is very much new who, yeah. um, as far as I recall. So originally... They wanted the doctor to have a screwdriver. They, they wanted it to be the doctor's version of a screwdriver. So it kind of to be a normal screwdriver. So they were like, well, have it use sonic waves. And actually, it was Patrick Troughton himself. He picked up a pen light from the visual effects department. And he's like, he was going to use that. And that was going to be what it was. However, in the actual recordings, so on the animation, it looks a bit like a pen light. Mm-hmm. And the actual recording, though, he had to use what was basically a safety whistle from Deborah Watling's. They, they all wear like life jackets when they're boating ashore. Mm. He had to basically use the whistle from that because he dropped the prop in a pipe the day that they were meant to be shooting with the prop. Fuck's sake. <laughs> so they, he had to use a whistle. Uh, thankfully, they have corrected that over the years. Since the overarching story titles were introduced back in The Savages... Where it was like, you know, The Savages, episode, episode one, one, episode two. Episode two yeah, 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 yeah. This is the first story that doesn't have the word the in the title. As in, as the first word. It's not the Fury from the Deep. It's just Fury, Fury from, the, from deep. the Deep. Even though every time I was writing my notes, I was writing the Fury from the <laughs> Deep. Because you, you get so used to it. No, because like every time, like, well, see, this is the thing, like, every time I hear Fury from the Deep, I'm actually reminded of something completely different. It's a movie called Ibraya, Horror of the Deep, which is a Godzilla movie where he takes on a giant sea lobster. Interesting. Yep. So the ninth Doctor would be very happy with this story. Nobody dies. Everybody lives. Yeah, you're right. Everyone does live. Originally, Quill was meant to die. Hmm. So you said in your recap that Quill was fine um, and that Victoria's scream killed off the seaweed and Hmm. that he was fine afterwards. Originally, she was meant to have killed him with her scream and they decided against it so in this story everybody lives which is great a couple of things that were sort of different from the original version as well uh the opening beach scene where they have the foam fight mm-hmm. no that wasn't scripted <laughs> that of course, was of course it wasn't just having fun um originally there was a subplot in episodes four and five that involved the weed creature attacking a conference um, since it could now go through all the pipelines in the Great Britain, Great British Gas Network. Hmm. Glad they removed that. Yeah. The story originally ended not with a scream, but with bagpipes. It would have been <laughs> Jamie playing his bagpipes, which would have defeated the creature. To be honest, I think that's just as acceptable as Victoria screaming. I I am not pushed one way or the other. Yeah, because <laughs> you have a thought on this. No, no, because like I think if okay, if you had put in the so like I know I don't know why it is in my head, right? It may be because I just have Attack of the Killer Tomatoes stuck in my head, which is a real movie and it is amazing. Um, 
if you have the subplot of the, the weed like attacking a conference somewhere else and then if you have Jamie saving the day by playing his bagpipes it then kind of becomes a bit of like a almost like farcical type thing it, it just becomes like a really really weird looking B movie I don't know why hmm. okay, we, we might circle back around to that later on yeah in the animated version there is a wanted poster and we've seen in sort of some of the animated versions before you know easter eggs crop up uh, there's a wanted poster with a photograph of the master. It's uh, Roger Delgado's mm-hmm. master. And it's visible on the notice board in the office um, of the guard who refuses Maggie Harris' entrance. And it's also in the impeller room. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same poster that we actually see in the faceless ones. Yeah. There's quite a nice bit of sort of internal animated continuity, I think. Mm-hmm. There is another in-joke in episode three. So when they're studying the seaweed in the TARDIS, one of the test tubes is called OR-OR-200. This is the reference to the fact that OR-OR was the production code and episode three was the 200th episode of Doctor Who. Ah. Which is quite cool. Quite that's, right. that's kind of cool. In Patrick's biography, his son said that this was one of his favorite stories. This is one of Patrick's favorites. And actually, shortly before she died in 2017, Deborah Watling also named this her favourite story. And it was one that she was really hopeful would be found again um, because she loved it so much. Mm. Okay, some quick changes between the animated version and the original version. Story takes place in 1975. Cool, good to know. Way to add more to that dating issue. Mm -hmm. The sonic screwdriver design is designed to match how it's going to look in the war games. For a bit of continuity there. Yeah. The box on the pipeline has four small screws instead of one large one. The guard who remove who refuses Maggie access, you can actually see him. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to just being heard over a speaker. Most of the guard's helmets have those like uh, Luke Skywalker in New Hope face, face shield, shield things. Yeah. Um, which was stupid in that and it's stupid in this too. Blast shields over your eyes. How are you meant to operate on anything? A number of sets were made bigger. We kind of, you know, we saw that with like Macro Tower and stuff like that. Uh, Price is in an electric wheelchair throughout the story. That wasn't originally in it. Mm -hmm. The see-through section of the pipe is much bigger than it originally was. Um, They add a sort of faint vapor when Oak and Quill are subduing Maggie to sort of show the gas being released. Uh, I originally imagine they just opened their mouths, which would have been odd. The actual, so the effect is... Uh, so that sequence is actually existing oh. because of the um, the Australian uh, censorship mm. rules. So it's actually a pretty kind of freaky experience, especially if you watch it like one in the morning when you're very tired. Um, <laughs> but what it does is it zooms in on uh, Quill. And so you have the hissing effect and it's just a sort of like a kind of a quick zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out effect of, you know, the stuff from coming from his mouth. But there's no vapor or anything like that. It's just a sound effect and camera work. Quill and Oak swap places when using the emergency vent controls to get Robson under the weeds control. Mm-hmm. Originally it was Oak. In the animation, it's Quill. Van Lutchens has a bigger torch when inspecting <laughs> the impeller shaft. Do what you want with that sentence. Yeah, so at the end of episode five... Everyone who's been taken over by the weed up until that point appears. So Robson, Van Lutyens, Chief Baxter, Chief Carney, and so on. They all appear on screen. Originally, it was just Robson because money. Yeah. (laughs) There's obviously the helicopter scene. I'm sure we'll discuss that in a bit. Mm. Quite energetic. Lots of 
seaweed like tentacles in the animated version they they weren't in the original <laughs> and obviously there are multiple weed weed creatures um originally there would have just been one just before we go on there's one thing that's kind of like it, it, now that you've given me a date for when this happens it seems kind of weird it's like okay this is set in 1975 mm-hmm. which is seven years after so seven years beyond the air date what happened that uh gas companies employ security forces that all dress like cobra commander from gi joe <laughs> i don't think they employ people who dress like that in their own environment i assume that's their uniform but but, but then my, my, my point is like you know, why do they look like you know, the fucking guys from cobra like why why don't they just look like a regular security guard as opposed to some sort of a weird part of their recruitment drive <laughs> Come work for us, and you look super cool. Good <laughs> oh. reason, Danny. <laughs> the snappy uniforms. <laughs> okay, on to our cast. So, as Doctor Harris or Frank Harris, we have Roy Spencer. He's the second of two Doctor Who acting credits for Roy. We previously discussed him in the Ark, where he played Maniac. He was the human who represented the Doctor Dodo and Stephen at their trial. As Van Lutchens, we have John Abenary. Yeah, we're going to Abenary. First of four Doctor Who appearances for John, we'll see him again in The Ambassadors of Death, Death to the Daleks, and The Power of Kroll. John has commented that the scene where Van Lutchens gets dragged into the foam by the weed creature was actually incredibly dangerous to film. So four feet beneath the foam was a platform, which he was supposed to land on and crouch down. That platform, however, was very small. And if he lost his footing, it meant he would have fallen about 30 feet. And he commented that if that had happened, if he had fallen, odds are no one would have noticed and they would have thought that the scene went off perfectly and he could have been very badly injured with no one noticing that he was down there. Jesus Christ. John's non-Who credits include Robin of Sherwood, The Legend of Robin Hood, Survivors, the BBC adaptation of The Last of the Mohicans, and its sequel, Hawkeye the Pathfinder, The Moon Stallion, Blake Seven, and he also has a small role in The Godfather Part 3. Hmm. John passed away back in 2000. Megan Jones is played by Margaret John. I've just realised that her initials are the same. I don't know why that's now hard for me not to see. <laughs> this is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Margaret. Now, Margaret has the record for the longest gap between appearances on Doctor Who. We see her again in The Idiot's Lantern, which is not for 38 years after this episode came out. Jesus. Now, before you send, as Paddy would describe it, your letters on a postcard. Yep. Yes, Bernard Cribbins technically made the Doctor Who movie and then he appeared later on and that was technically a 39-year difference. However, he did do audio stuff in between, so that's why that's not good. Outside of who, Margaret's acting credits include Game of Thrones, where she played Old Nan in season one, Gavin and Stacey, High Which, Hopes. Go on. Sorry, I, I love her in Gavin and Stacey. She plays, um, oh, what's her name? Doris, who's like their elderly neighbour. That's also a kind of like basically she's an infini- a nymphomaniac that only kind of caters, like that goes out with the younger guys in the town. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's, she's fucking hilarious. High Hopes, Tea and Biscuits with Maggie Pritchard, Eyes Down, The District Nurse, Crossroads, The Boy Merlin, Blake Seven, and Zed Cars. Yay, we have Zed Cars. We do. Margaret passed away in 2011, which actually means that 
Game of Thrones was her last um, acting job and she passed away shortly afterwards, which mm-hmm. is quite upsetting. Robson is played by Victor Madern. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Victor. His other credits include The End of the Affair, The Night My Number Came Up, Sink the Bismarck. He's in a number of carry-on films, as a lot of Doctor Who actors were. Crossroads, The Avengers, Dixon of Doc Green, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He was the junk man, in case you're wondering. Stepstone Son, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, and The Darling Buds of May. Victor passed away in 1993. I actually remember him from a Carry On movie that actually had Bernard Cribbins in it, uh, Carry On Spying. He played a secret spy called, whose name, his real name was Milchman, and his alias was Milkman. <laughs> <laughs> Inventive. <laughs> Oak is played by John Gill. This is the only Doctor Who appearance for John. His non-Who credits include All Creatures Great and Small, The Bill, and Swizzlewick. John passed away back in 2007. As Quill, we have Bill Burridge. This is the only credited Doctor Who role for Bill. However, he did appear uncredited several times in The Romans, The Savages, The Underwater Menace, The Demons, and Frontier in Space. His other television credits include roles on Taxi, Doomwatch, Zed Cars Again, and Upstairs Downstairs. Okay, in this story we say goodbye to Victoria. So what we often do in this section is we talk about why the person chose to leave or why the character didn't continue, whichever one it was, and then what happened to the character afterwards. So why did Deborah leave? Well, a couple of years before her death, Deborah actually released a book. And so this is why Deborah left in her own words. I knew that I'd like to do a year when I joined. I also knew they'd have liked me to do more than that, but I decided to go. I thought it was time, so I gave three months notice. You see, I'd learned a lot about television and I felt I had to get out and into theatre to learn something about that. They did try pretty hard to keep me on. I was already in the next six storylines, but no, I had to go. It was terribly sad, like the end of an era for me. So Deborah chose to leave. Which I think is, given the way that some of the companions or the actors have been kind of given, the, I won't say poor treatment, but... You can say poor treatment because it was poor treatment. Yeah, okay, they, they, yeah, okay, yeah. No, they were given poor treatment in terms of whether it was the producer or the way that they were handled with their departures because of contractual agreements or whatever the case may be. I actually think it's actually kind of cool that uh, she chose to leave. She had a plan and she and she chose to leave of her own volition. And obviously she had made some sort of an impact that the writers and the production crew wanted her to keep to stay on. But, you know kudos to her for you know sticking by her decision yeah and we'll obviously get to it when we talk about victoria properly but um slight spoiler for the upcoming section for a going away story i think that was handled very well oh we'll get to that more yeah yeah no i agree so what happened to victoria after fury from the deep well we do see deborah reprise the role again in dimensions in time the made for tv film downtime which we may review at some point in the future mm-hmm. and in a number of audio stories so a little bit about downtime which is kind of her most known recurrence is that in 1980 victoria returned to tibet and the great intelligence for the third time and surprise surprise it was able to manipulate her um she established the new world university which was preparing the way for the great intelligence to man itself it's to manifest itself in Earth's computers. 
1995, its plan was almost ready when a ghostly vision of Professor Travers got her to realise that she was being manipulated and she joined the fight against the intelligence's plan. I have downtime. It is an interesting film. Mm. I really need to rewatch it now that I know Victoria more as a character because I got it as a gift years ago Mm. because there are some other companions in it and I didn't have a clue really about anything about Victoria or the Great Intelligence or anything. So it'll probably make way more sense now than it did to me back then. My memories of it are that it's actually quite dark. Mm, It has quite dark moments. Yeah. According to other media, um, Victoria married and she had several children. She never told her family about her travels in the TARDIS or that she was from the 19th century. (laughs) That was a piece of information she just kept to herself. (laughs) What was it? (laughs) Mother always looked at me like my skirt was too high. I wonder why that was. (laughs) If that was the case, Mother's a huge hypocrite because Mother used to wear things that were halfway up around her hole. Huge hypocrite. So we have done our story summary. We have done our trivia spot. It is now time to get to the nuts and bolts of our character discussion. So today we have the Doctor. We have our companions of Jamie and Victoria. We also have a story-based companion in the form of Dr. Harris. We have two prominent characters that we're going to go through, which are Van Lutyens and Megan Jones. And then we have the villains, uh, Robson, Oak and Quill, and seaweed. Yep. <laughs> so we will start as we always do with the doctor. Mm-hmm. I need to say a comment before you say anything about the doctor, if you don't mind. Fire away. Doctor, I love you. I truly do. But the way you sideline Victoria for no fucking reason is really pissing me off. Stop being a sexist prick. I have said my piece. <laughs> no would you like to continue on <laughs> or would you want time to calm it and then i will no i'll, I'll continue on right yeah. when we got to the point in the story where the doctor and jamie were going off to do whatever they were going to do i can't even remember this point i think they were gonna look at the impeller room is, yeah. it, is this like, epi- like the very first episode the, ver- for- the very start right yeah uh, so after they've been captured those two escape We'll get to how they escaped in a second, right? So those two escape. or The three of them escape and then they wander a bit and then the Doctor and Jamie are going to the impeller room. And the Doctor says, come along, Jamie, let's go see the impeller room. And then he turns to Victoria and it's literally like, ah, um, no, not you. It's like that joke of like, you know, you're picking people for a sports team and then you yeah. get to the and this is talking about like a stereotypical the stuff asthma, right not the, the asthmatic bespectacled kid with the knee asthmatic socks. cripple or whatever you're like no just, 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 just no yeah. you sit over there and like Victoria is clearly pissed about it Jamie yeah. makes fun of her over it mm-hmm. by sticking his tongue out at her and I'm like why were there was no reason to leave her behind no literally fucking zero i would say something if this came later in the story when she'd already been freaked out 
mm-hmm. by the seaweed and she didn't want to go near it again. But like this is in episode fucking one. Yeah, like and it's like but as well, why would you leave her in a scenario where it's like, you know, you're now being treated as prisoners? Like why go off by yourselves and yeah. leave her still technically a prisoner? Yeah, and if people come back to to talk to you and she's there by herself. Yeah. You've put her in a horrible situation. And I, the only thing I can chalk it up to is him being a sexist prick. Because there is literally no other reason. Yeah. She's safer with them than she would be on her own. And like he has to know by now, based off of every other fucking episode that she's been in, that she's going to go after them anyway. It's what she does. Yeah. Like it's... No one puts Victoria in a corner. She doesn't like going there. No, she really doesn't. <laughs> that being said, though. Mm-hmm. Alright, so I started this story off with my hackles up, right? Because I've been trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? And this story just, the first episode shot it to shit. However, aside from that, he did do quite well in the story overall. It was mm-hmm. a very Troughton Doctor story. Yeah. Do you know? We've seen this type of story before. I'll get that in a little bit. Um, but he plays it well. Mm-hmm. He plays the fear well. He plays the intelligence well. He plays off of the other characters really well. It is a very Troughton story. Do you know? It's a story that works well with him as the Doctor. And as much as I give him shit about the way he sidelines Victoria, when it came to her departure, he was incredibly sweet. Mm. And at least he made sure she was taken care of, unlike what he did with Vicky, yep. who is the same age as Victoria. Mm. And he just left in the middle of ancient Greece to find a man that he had never met. He has at least learned from his mistakes. Question, did you read The Mythmakers yet? I have not read The Mythmakers yet. Cool. It is on my TBR list. But I have cool. not gotten to it yet. Cool, because like, I I would I really want to know because I that also that point really does irritate the fuck out of me. <laughs> but I would love uh, to know like if David Whitaker? No, he didn't write the Mythmakers. Mm, I don't like it on David the Mythmakers. No, but whoever wrote the Mythmakers, I would love to know if there is an actual conversation between was the it, two. Of them. Was it Lucarotti? No, it wasn't Lucarotti. He only did uh, Savage. He only did Marco Polo. He did Aztecs, and then he's credited for Massacre. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I look up there anyway. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just want to know like if there is an actual conversation, which which is a sort of are you sure? Mm. Because I think the way they, the way that he deals with her departure, and we'll we'll speak about it from each of their perspectives. I think as we go through our main cast, the way he deals with it, where. You know, he clearly realizes that she's struggling with it, and he realizes that quite early in the story, um, after he fucking abandoned her to, to whatever. But early, but after that moment, <laughs> he starts to realize that she's not enjoying herself. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I like the fact that, like, when he says it's time for them to leave, and Victoria doesn't stand up, he knows exactly what it is, and. He says it for her, so she doesn't have to be the one to say it herself. I actually, um, that's a that's a point that I really enjoyed in this. It's a sort of a an emotional awareness mm. of his compa- of his companions, 
Yeah. And it's like when he can see it, you. I think, unlike say the chase, hmm. which is sort of um, like the there had been a true line of Ian and Barbara's desire to get home yeah. throughout their sixteen stories in some way, shape, or form. But it's at the end of the chase where it's like really, okay, it's happening now. Yeah. Whereas with this, it's very layered and it's very well paced out across the six episode story. Yeah. And so that if you're watching it, like if you if you ne- if you didn't know that Victoria was leaving, you can't really be taken by surprise. Yeah. Um, what I like about the way, uh, we're probably in the overall, I'm going to talk about this departure in more detail, right? Because I agree, it was done very, very well. What I like from just the doctor's perspective, though, yeah. is he doesn't just leave her there. He doesn't go off in a huff. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one who says to her, "You don't want to come with us, do you?" He doesn't make her say, "I want to stay." Yeah. He asks the Harrises to take care of her. Mm-hmm. And which reinforces what I've said before is that Victoria isn't really a traveling companion. She's a ward mm-hmm. and someone that the doctor is in charge of and responsible for. Mm-hmm. And I like that he doesn't just shirk that responsibility like we've seen him do with Vicky, for example. Mm-hmm. But I also like that he doesn't just leave. He gives her the night for her to say goodbye to everybody to make sure that she knows what she's doing, that it's not a quick decision or whatever. But then like he reinforces the fact, we're not going to force you one way or the other. Yeah, and especially with Jamie goes, like, Jamie, we can't influence her decision. It's like... Yeah. Does it redeem the sidelining at the start? I don't think so. No. Because the two things are completely unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> but does it show that in some way that he has Victoria's best interest at heart? Yes. I think there's certain scenes that you can look at through Victoria's time in the TARDIS, starting with Tomb of the Cybermen, I think, Mm -hmm. when he had that sit-down conversation with her in Tomb of the Cybermen. And there's been a couple of moments here and there in more than half of the stories. There's been seven, so I'm going to go with at least four, um, where you can really see his dedication to her in a ward uh guardian capacity yeah um you know we saw twice actually in the abominables or in uh not the abominables no man the other one web of fear web of fear one we get as a sort of a retroactive to abominable where travers mentions the fact that the doctor had told him about Victoria. Mm-hmm. And so Travers knew Victoria's story and that she didn't have anybody. Yeah. Um, but also when the doctor is saying to Jamie, look, I'll give myself up if I have to. If I do, though, you have to take care of Victoria. It's yeah. very much at the forefront of his mind. And I don't think it explains away the way that he constantly sidelines her. I think it could if those scenes had been written better. If those scenes had been written from a protective perspective and not a, well, let's me and Jamie just bugger off and either not tell her, which they did twice, (laughs) or, 
you hear where it's like, uh, oh, uh, no, Victoria, you, you, you stay here. Do you know? Um, I think had those scenes been written better, it may work as an overacting thing. Um, but because they weren't written better, those sexist moments come off as a massive contrast to how he feels about her as his ward. And it's not like she's like, you know, incompetent or she's not. No. It's like she's very smart. She's very mm. crafty. She's and like she's really helpful. So and she's like, just as dedicated to them as they are to her. She's yeah. not as physically powerful as they are. Mm. But like in every single story where they leave her behind, they get in trouble and she yeah. tries to help them. <laughs> like I yeah, like it's just a strange kind of dual nature of this particular doctor when it comes to the female companions, I think. Mm. And like going back to the story in particular, I think it, it, it's gonna sound so cruel and I don't mean it to sound this way. The story really shows a lot of what makes Troughton's Doctor Troughton's Doctor from what I've seen. Yeah. We have really emotional caring moments. We have the bromance with him and Jamie and mm. the way that he can sort of get Jamie to do whatever he wants even if Jamie clearly didn't fucking want to do it. But we also have him treating his female companions not the best. No. Um, so, from an interesting perspective, this story is actually a very good insight into Troughton's Doctor, from what I've seen, and, and people will probably disagree with me, but I think, including the sexist part, it actually gives you a good insight into who Troughton has been as the Doctor up to this point. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, anything else you had on the Doctor? Yeah, because um, the Doctor gets to show off his new toy, and I'm not talking about his inflatable dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah no, as we talked about earlier on we get to see the Sonic and mm-hmm. it makes a very brief appearance at the start of one ep- episode one of a six episode story it's not a you know it's not the magical MacGuffin ish I've just realised there was a perfect opportunity to once again use it and they didn't yep they were locked in a room yep with a door with hinges mm-hmm. Yes. Could you could you not have used it on the on, no. on the door? Nope. 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 <laughs> <laughs> to unscrew the locking mechanism or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's not how it works. Shush. <laughs> uh, He's clearly never hung a door. He doesn't realize that it's possible. <laughs> no. All, all the doors open for me. <laughs> Tardis related question for you. Yes. Right, TARDIS lands on the ocean. Mm-hmm. TARDIS floats on the ocean. Mm-hmm. TARDIS floats on the ocean. I don't really have a problem with, though we have seen in previous stories, TARDIS would sink. Yes, but be fine. Does the TARDIS have an anchor? Because tides. Hello. Um, it's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, because I'm trying to see. Oh, maybe like you know, it's like some sort of aquatic magnet was it magna lock type thing you know is it, or is it like is it like you know, you can turn a switch on the tires and it just becomes immovable maybe but like odd <laughs> curse you poseidon <laughs> oh. so um as it's a Victoria special, I suppose we can call it that. Mm. Um, how do you want to do the companions? 
So usually we do the leaving companion last. But I think we probably have a lot to say about Victoria in this one. Yeah. And some of it feeds directly into Jamie. So, I don't know. Do you want to do Victoria first for a change? Yeah, we'll do Victoria first for a change. Cool. So, how did you feel about Victoria in this one? So, I have a love-hate scenario with Victoria in this one, okay? Mm. This is probably her best performance. This is Deborah Watling's best performance as Victoria. Mm. I know we're going to discuss this more on Wednesday. <laughs> um, but... I think it's a great showcase for Victoria because we get to see her intelligence. Mm-hmm. We get to see her resourcefulness in terms of the, she's quite adept at using the pick lock. Uh, we get to see her intelligence when she's capable of doing the sciencey stuff alongside the doctor. I actually thought it was a very nice thing inside the, the TARDIS where it's like, like on the installation, you know, you have it's Jamie's brawn and the doctor's mm-hmm. brain. Inside the TARDIS, it's the doctor's brain and Victoria's brain. You yeah, know? <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed that sort of thing. And Jamie was like, going, "What's this thing here with the?" <laughs> um, so, but I think what really stands out for me for this one for Victoria is her humanity. Mm. She is just so perfectly human in this, in the sense of it's not all some grand adventure. It's not all, you know, fucking rainbows and sunshine. Like there's a psychological toll that this type of lifestyle takes. And it's great to actually see that done across, as I said, done across the entirety of a story, rather than just, you know, sort of, ah, we're kind of fucking sick of it, can we please go home, you know? Yeah, I think the closest we got to this type of reaction before, and it was only one scene, whereas to your point, this is the entire episode, or the Mm. entire story, so six episodes, was... In the Daleks, when they land on um, Scarrow, mm-hmm. and Barbara realizes that they're not on Earth. Yeah. And she gets quite despondent over that fact, and Ian is like, well, you still have me. Yeah. I think that's probably the closest we've gotten to this real nature of it. Yeah. You know, possibly Dodo's goodbye letter, had she bothered to fucking write one, mm. could have touched on this. But it didn't because they didn't fucking bother doing something like that for her. And I don't think Ben and Polly really had it either. Not to this extent. So I think the closest we got to a scene like this, the closest scene we got to something like what we saw in the six episodes was probably that thing with Barbara and and the Daleks. Yeah. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are we we on? Like, Like, as we pointed out, episodes 198 to 204. Three, Three, 204 yeah 203 versus episode five <laughs> yeah uh it's a fucking long way you know um but no like, I, I just like it's just her humanity and this is just it's so believable and it's 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 kind of refreshing mm. because you know it's again like it's the thing of you know it, it takes a toll you know and even like with victoria who she unfortunately she has no ties left anywhere it's still not, you know, there's still, like, I would still prefer not to be here type thing. Yeah. And it's it's a very kind of, kind of, like, it brings back certain, you know, memories of my own where it's like, I'm in a stable scenario, but at the same time, it's not really good for me. Mm. I think the best thing for me is to step away from this. 
despite yeah. the fact that I have no idea what's going to be after that first step. So when Victoria does this, I'm like, you know, fuck it, good for her. Um, I hate the fact that we get to see her most resourcefulness in her final story. It's a thing mm-hmm. that I don't really like. It's because I don't, I don't like this whole like let's make the last like the companion's last story to be their best thing. Where it's like, why not the entirety of their fucking run? You know, the use of her scream as a sort of as like you know the the magic weapon. I'm like, right. I would have less of an issue if mm. she owned it. Like at the at the very end, you know, where like they're trying to get her to scream and she has the sort of like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can. And it's just like kind of starts. But like you've told that your scream is now the best weapon against it. Like just, you know, fucking plant your heels, inhale and just fucking let go. If she had done that, I'd, I'd probably be a bit happier with things. But as it is, it's still a sort of, um, you know, why is my flaw being used as a as a weapon type thing? Not even a flaw, my flaw, but why is yeah yeah. So that's my love hate with Victoria in this particular one. I have a similar love hate. Mm. Um, as I, as I've said, I think the goodbye aspect of this story is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's well founded. We've actually seen it grow over the last episode and this episode. The last story and this story. Um, It's well developed over the course of this story. And it's followed through beautifully. It's not something that comes out of fuck off nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like Dodos. For example, Dodos came out of fuck off nowhere with no idea why. Ben and Polly kind of foreshadowed a little bit. Because, you know, they were accidental travellers as such Hmm. Ian and Barbara we always knew that eventually they would leave because they always wanted to do you know Um, they were happy to travel but that wasn't why they were there Um, so I think that was done very very well I think yes this is her most resourceful we see her again refusing to be sidelined going off to follow the boys to see what they're doing the hairpin thing is just hilarious because she does it twice Mm. (laughs) she uses it once to get out of the room and then to break into Harris's house (laughs) which I think is fantastic and yeah I I love her scientific moments because it really speaks back to her history as a character to know that she grew up with a scientist as a father and yeah she may not be the doctor's level of scientist but he can leave her to do something and trust that she can do a bunsen burner test by herself and she can do you know basic reactions and you know be like hey there's there's something in this you need to look at like she was doing her own experiments off in her own little corner and he could leave her to do those while he dealt with his own stuff she didn't need her handheld all of that is fantastic but she's treated like fucking shit like that thing from the first episode rubbed me completely the wrong way when she freaks out over the foam and the seaweed we have um robson who i know is kind of the bad guy but like we've him saying that she's hysterical and the screaming solving the problems i don't know if you i don't know if this came across the same with you a i understood it as soon as it as soon as it first happened i was like holy shit they're actually doing it and part of me was like, okay, 
Okay, let's see how they go with it. But to be honest, to me, it just came across that they were taking the fucking piss. It just came across. They're like, oh, everyone just says Victoria just screams all the time. Well, what if the scream was actually the thing that solved the story? And it just seemed like they were actually making fun of her. And like the fact that they don't have her own it, the fact that like, understandably, it's very hard to perform under pressure. And particularly when like, you were screaming in terror and now they're asking you just to scream into a microphone. That's probably really awkward and uncomfortable in a room full of people you don't fucking know. But like the fact that they have her be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how. And like literally everyone's like, just fucking scream, you bitch. Like, (laughs) what the hell? It makes her look so weak. Yeah. And as opposed to it being a part of her personality being used, it's it's presented as a weakness yeah being used yeah. it's not just the fact that victoria screams all the time because things scare the shit out of her but she gets over it and she moves on and she deals with life it's victoria screams all the time yeah i was like if she had if it had been a case of where the doctor was like you know you are our best chance of like you know this and if she just as i said fucking planted herself and just you know went hell for letter with the screaming at least then like she's kind of owning this thing that she realizes that i'm not like yeah, or even, like, like I don't mind her being awkward and uncomfortable about having to scream yeah. in front of a load of people. It's very awkward to put yourself in that type of situation. But, like, even if they'd had her be, like, when he says, you know, oh, it was Victoria's scream, and she's like, what? Hmm. hmm. Well, now, like, this is what you get for not hiding your emotions and for screaming when scary things happen. Like, had they all, even if she was still uncomfortable doing it in a room, room full of people... Had they had her kind of like, you know, maybe as a nod to Jamie being like, yeah, so being the big brave one all the time doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah. Do you know, like, had they had her like own it as opposed to just being surprised and then awkward and uncomfortable, I probably would have liked it a lot better. But the way they presented it, it seemed like they were actually making fun of the character. Yeah, I it's, it's kind of reminding me, I know that you didn't play a whole lot of it because... Um, I just didn't think you were into it as much. Uh, Lego Indiana Jones. Mm. But um, in the Temple of Doom levels, um, Willy, like her scream is used to shatter glass obstacles. And it's like, you know, okay, Daddy's kind of taking the piss out of the character. You know, and now, yeah. granted, like, I, I'm not a huge fan of fucking, you know, her in that movie. Um, but it's still like that's kind of taking more of a piss out of the fucking character, you know? Yeah. Like for me, that really taints this. Mm-hmm. Do you know? We don't get Jamie ever acknowledging really Victoria's skill at getting out of the room or whatever, breaking, entering, whichever the case may be. Um, no one ever comments on how she can do experiments and like give the woman some fucking give, correction. Give the girl some fucking credit. Like, yeah, she's meant to be like fifteen years old. Like, I don't know. Like, it's a, it's a it's a real mixed bag for me um, in this story. Love hate. Um, yeah, definitely. So, we also have Jamie in the story. Yes. Mr. McCrimmon. He who, the McCrimmon punch. <laughs> the McCrimmon punch, which is not as powerful as the Victoria scream. No. <laughs> um, he... I both like and hate how he was a bit childish with Victoria in this story. Like, they're making faces at each other, and it's like two teenagers on a school tour or something. Well, I think I think what kind of bugs me is that he makes the face as a sort of... Um, 
Nah, no. nah, nah, nah. Yeah, but see, this is the thing that was that the animation makes it look an awful lot meaner than it possibly is in the the. Live. This is true. This is true. We are basing this off of the animation. So. Yeah, because it makes it look an awful lot meaner. No, I would say that there is some sort like. I I would kind of do it in the whole sort of like the way that you and I would do it type of a thing. Mm. That's how that's how I envisioned that it was meant to be. But, I stick my tongue out of patty regularly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there we go. So, but the way the animation has, and again, unfortunately, sometimes it's the failing of the animation, despite the fact that they help bring the stories to light or to life, there is certain aspects of it that I think they just overemphasize and it kind of spoils them a small bit or if it gives the wrong connotation mm. i think here's a case of it's the wrong connotation but there is this sort of a thing where but it's not but it's the conversations that victoria is trying to have with jamie and he just doesn't listen yeah in, in the sense of like no he, like okay he can like you know he's responding to her but he's not listening to what her core message is which is she's unhappy but he's but like I think it's I don't think that's on purpose I think it's that Jamie enjoys all this so much mm. he can't fathom the fact that she doesn't yeah I now get, granted he doesn't get fucking left behind all the time no that that's very true <laughs> that, that is very true and like they they're slightly in similar scenarios in the sense of like if Jamie used to be put back into Scotland he has no one because the clan has moved out over to France so obviously he could be moved to France or wherever the fucking case may be but he's he's all in in this particular way of life yeah hence the fact that you know fucking Jamie is probably one is one of the longest serving companions in the history of the show <laughs> so he's all in for this thing and yeah like, I think it is a case where he just can't like how could you possibly love, not love this particular thing that we do you know that we jump from fucking place to place and we always seem to land in the shit what's not to love <laughs> um so i i think it's just like there is like again like, yeah, i suppose it's just a small bit of the um, not being able to read the person fully you know mm. uh, like and look we get classic jamie in in this particular story in terms of you know he does you know the mccrimmon stuff he we have the mccrimmon effect granted no it's like you know Victoria's the one that fucking <laughs> knocks that fucker out but uh, we have at least we attempt the McCrimmon effect I would love to have seen Fraser dangling from a fucking ceiling light above a big bubble bath <laughs> <laughs> that would have been funny um, but it's another, another good performance from Fraser in terms of like performance wise with Jamie he's, he's childish in the way that he interacts with Victoria but he's also kind of childish in how he handles Victoria's leaving. In the sense of that... No, he doesn't quite throw a kind of a tantrum. But like he's like, but you can't leave, you can't leave type thing. And it's like, even though the doctor says, look, we have to let her make her own decision. He's still, you know, are you sure you want to leave? Are you sure you want to leave? Are you sure type thing? I think... No, I don't know if it's childish or if it's just... Wearing the heart on the sleeve a bit too much, but I don't. I don't know if his child. I don't even know if he's wearing his heart on the sleeve a bit too much. I. I think. Personally, I think both of those statements undersell it, which is mm. that he's devastated. Yeah. Understandably so. I get the sense that he had a much better relationship with Victoria than he had with Ben and Polly. Yeah. Probably because he was in the caregiver 
role like he was the big brother in mm-hmm. in that in that dynamic and i think at the end i think there's two bits of it i think the first of all is him kind of going ah oh, but really like i mean come on like we're we're a trio and we, we why would you want to leave i think another part of it though is more so than the doctor i think jamie recognizes and he he asks her about it he's like do you want to stay here like this is Mm. the 20th century do you want to stay here and i think he is understandably concerned about not just the fact that she's leaving them but where she's leaving them and you know victoria makes the comment of well there's nothing for her in victorian times she has nobody left um here is as good a place as any and i love the fact that like i don't know about you but i don't worry about victoria being left in the 1970s no because um, she's shown that she can adapt quite well to to the, yeah. to the changes in timeline um but i think it's just that he's just devastated that she's leaving and one of the things that i think was done very well in this story that sort of sets up his reaction is they're constantly describing Jamie and Victoria together as the two teenagers. Yeah. Joe, and they're re-emphasizing the fact that Jamie is older than her for sure, but not by much. Hmm. Do you know, he's maybe 18 and she's 15. Yeah. Do you know? And I think when you look at it from a perspective of he's an 18 year old and his little sister for lack of a better word doesn't want to travel with them anymore yeah that's heart-wrenching and i completely agree with you like his goodbyes to her like the doctor's bits were very well done but jamie's were like oh my god like soul destroying (laughs) yeah like it's um like i think what was it again if you're out, if anyone has a copy of episode six, even if that's the only fucking episode you have, fucking send it back. Even just please. the end of it. Yeah, just even from the, the dinner scene onwards. The, yeah, the last ten minutes of it. Fuck it, um, because these these are the moments that I really want to see. Like the like the acting moments. I mm. like yeah. They're like some of the stories that are missing are good stories, but if there's a human acting moment in it, that kind of is. A, like for example now you know our discussion about the massacre i wouldn't mind seeing the massacre returned but i definitely want to see that monologue yes yeah if anything was to only be returned i want to see that monologue same with master plan mm. i want to see the final episode or at least the last 10 minutes of it yeah with that fucking sarah's got you know sarah kingdom is dead what a waste defeated fucking thing you know yeah here is no different. I want to see the fucking soul crushing, you know, the soul leave Jamie's eyes, that type of thing. He plans to kiss on the forehead and that interaction inside the TARDIS, you know? That's so you, by the way. What? That is probably the most you Jamie has ever been because that's the way you get when you're sad. <laughs> it, it, it is literally that, like, that is, that is a mirror <laughs> to you when you're sad. Or like if you're upset about something or like mm. if I'm upset about something and I need to leave or whatever, like yeah. the big thing that happened in my life three years ago. Yeah. That is literally you. You will literally <laughs> just come up, give me a hug and kiss me on the forehead. That's like yeah. literally what you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Yeah. Oh well, you know, <laughs> I, I've had worse comparisons. Uh, also, like it's, I think this is, like up in, in other stories, like we've seen a sort of um, pre-Empire reveal, Luke and Leia sort of relationship between the two of them. Mm. Here, I think that that goodbye, like for me anyway, I read no romantic inclinations no. in that goodbye. It's just, you know, the the kind of the brother sister type dynamic as opposed to the, you know, are they aren't they type thing, you know? Yeah, I never really got an are they aren't they with them. Uh, well, I think I th- he, I think he used to get a rise out of her. Yeah, I think like possibly the ice warriors because again it was just like the ice warriors was that the uh, the comments about the clothing, you know, that. Oh yeah. Oh, why don't you? But I think that was just her, him trying yeah. to get a rise out of her, you know. Um, one thing I will say just to, to end Jamie on a bit of a high as opposed to a sort of like emotional like crippling thing is I, I, lo- I mentioned it with the doctor I love the fact that Jamie has another oh hell no I'm not doing that why do you not but, but okay fine Jesus yeah but, it, but like, that's the thing in my notes like, it's like I, I think was it I've watched the next story I watched the next two stories and I'm on the one after that and you'd be surprised how many of my story notes have and Jamie and Jamie reluctantly agrees. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this thing of no, no, but I don't want to, but, but for fuck's sake. <laughs> and you could tell that sometimes he's probably a little bit jealous of the fact that Victoria doesn't always have to go. Yeah. <laughs> that was like you better be careful or or I'll unleash Jamie on you. Jamie's like, ah bollocks. <laughs> Don't unleash me. Yeah, I don't wanna. I'm quite happy being leashed. <laughs> okay, so moving on, we have our story-based companion of the week, in the form of Doctor Harris, who later obviously becomes the new uh, foster father, I suppose, mm. uh, for Victoria. So, my thing with Harris, right? Uh-huh. Again, Paddy chooses the placement, right? I completely understand why you put Harris in the companion category. He's he's aligned with our heroes for the majority of the story. Hmm. He, you know, well, he goes along with Robson where he has to. He doesn't obviously believe that they're doing anything wrong and whatever, right? Yeah. I think, though, no. Caveat. The man's wife is sick. Yeah. And then she goes missing. And becomes a giant seaweed monster, which I'm not sure if he's actually aware of that fact. But whatever. He's a bit weak. He is. Particularly when you compare him to Van Lutyens. See, this is the thing though, because I was like going, right, is Van Lutyens a companion per se? Like, Because most of his interactions are with Robson away mm. from the group. So in that sense, in my head, he's just a prominent character. But oh I, yeah, no, I agree that he's yeah, oh a prominent yeah. character. But I think, like, well, that's the thing as a prominent character, he probably does more than. Oh, <laughs> than oh yeah, no, oh yeah, did. sorry, no, yeah, I agree, I agree, because uh, like it's like he, I, I kind of put him in the Barkley character uh, category from like Ten Planet, where it's like you know he initially doesn't trust them, but then they prove their worth, and it's like cool, I'll help you out, but. I think, yeah, okay, as you said, the caveat said that his wife is ill and that probably does impact some of his decision-making. But I think that... 
he's one of those people that you'd be curious to see how they react to the needs of the many versus the one argument, you know? Mm, like, we do see that when he does grow a backbone. Yeah. He does want to put the staff first. and He does yeah. want to abandon the facility, mm-hmm. which is commendable. But at the same time, it's, uh, I don't know, it comes across as weak. Like, I can't imagine him in a leadership role. No. No, I, I think, like, you know, and that's the thing where it's like, you know, oh, Harris takes over command. I'm like, I'm not seeing it. Like, I'm, no. not, I'm, I'm not really seeing it, you know? I, like, had Vin Lutchens not, um, you know, taken a tumble, <laughs> then, or sorry, been dragged <laughs> into the fucking foam mass, then he, he might have taken over. But then again, Harris is employed by the company, whereas Van Lutchens is a representative of a, of a foreign government. Mm. So I'm not even sure if Van Lutchens would be able to... No, I, I don't think Van Lutchens no, can. I no. think the the senior, the other scientist, yeah, no, like the, the chief, body of Robson... The, the, the chief engineer, who I have just in my head called O'Brien Tyrrell. Uh, <laughs> or Tyrrell O'Brien. Tyrrell O'Brien. Um, like, he probably would have been a fucking... Like, and the thing is, like... Unfortunately, he's not he's not prominent enough to be a prominent character, nor is he um, a companion in the sense because like he's just like he's a solid background guy, but he would have been a much better CEO replacement. Yeah, um, so that, I mean, that, that's just my feeling on Harris. I think like he's got a good heart. Yes. Terrible leadership, like oh, yeah, abysmal. But then again, I suppose like you know what what you know. What could have been if Maggie hadn't been a factor? What? True, but also like yeah, his notes were missing from his bag, mm-hmm. so he sends his wife to get them. Yeah, dude, fucking go get them yourself. <laughs> like if they're that, imp- she doesn't fucking know what notes you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> she's it's not a scientist she just, doesn't know what he means it's the thing with the, the picture on it you know uh, <laughs> like, you know he goes my god that's a spooky looking house yes it is darling you go first <laughs> yeah I think in terms of our companion scientists that we've had over the particularly over Troughton's run yeah I think Harris is probably the weakest yeah sit back and take some notes yeah so how about we segue? I was going, I was going to say skedaddle. No, that's not the right word. <laughs> segue into the prominent characters. Cool. So we have Van Lutchens mm-hmm. and Megan Jones. Yes. So my thoughts on Van Lutchens were... Now, I think it's... I was wrestling with this thought and I was like going, okay, is it slightly underhanded to try and use the chief to get you know okay like you know, clearly Robson isn't looking to me how about you go to you know Rob's, uh, Robson and present my theories as your own and it's like man you're you're the representative of a fucking foreign government that has a stake in this thing why don't you just actually you know pull out your governmental stamp and fucking force him to do whatever it is you know as opposed to appealing to him but I do have to give props to him for the fact that he's like, do what? Fuck it. I'll go down into the pipeline. I'll go check this. I'll put my, you know, fucking life on the line to get this done. Mm. I think 
Van Lutyens is a character type we're going to see a lot. Mm. The scientific advisor who's never listened to. Right? Yeah. It is a character we are going to see a lot. Not the specific character, but this character typing we are going to see a lot. We haven't seen it too much before now, but we have seen it a bit. The thing is, though, he is clearly very good at his job. He's not afraid to put his own neck out. However, he is aware of the extent of his reach, mm-hmm. which is in the day-to-day function, he is purely there as an advisor. If they mm-hmm. don't want to follow his advice, there is really nothing he can do. Um, now, it's possible that he could report back to The Hague and have them escalated or whatever. I get the sense in the story, though, he doesn't think there's time for that. So, yeah, I think it's a little bit underhanded trying to be like, hey, how about you talk to him? But, like, also, Robson was fucking back crap crazy. So, like, Van Lutyens wasn't wrong trying mm. to get the people that Robson does listen to to reason with him because Robson wouldn't listen to him. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't die on a hill about it, like, no. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nope, nope, nope. And all that's coming to my head as well. How about no, you crazy Dutch bastard? <laughs> uh, also, I love how they just have him like saying random shit in Dutch just throughout yeah. the episode. I have no idea what half of it meant, but all I'm imagining is just him muttering his breath, going, "You jammy fucking, I'll <laughs> fucking tell you." And <laughs> that's you off my Christmas card list. <laughs> So now we move on to Megan Jones. I couldn't really get a good read on her, to be honest, but she seems like a total bitch. <laughs> well, see, but this is the thing now is that, like, she at the start, she's presented as a, you know, oh, she's going to be an absolute fucking thundering, you know? Um, but tr- as the story progresses, I am actually kind of impressed by her, th- the way that she initially s- is skeptical of this whole thing. She becomes a bit more accepting. And like her assistant Perkins is like, but we can't. Do it. And she more or less tells him to shut the fuck up. And she kind of goes along with a lot of the plans, you know? Yeah, I get the sense though that like she put Robson in his position. I totally get a sense that they had a past relationship and that like, oh, yeah. she was using, giving him this position to try and get, reconnect with him. Yeah. Maybe I um, can reach him, you know, as she says, by trying to find him in his boudoir. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, I get the sense that. The reason why she chose him for this role, other than wanting to get in his pants, is that she is very aligned with him. Mm-hmm. The work comes first. Yeah. And the fact that um, Harris was trying to evacuate the compound and she kept saying no. Surely to Christ there were people other than the ones in that room that could have been evacuated. Yeah, like evacuated like all the Like the rest of the course. helicopter crew, for fuck's sake. Um, the rest of the families on the compound in the compound like do you know what I mean I think there was more that she could do and I think she saw the doctor as a scapegoat yeah and she put her trust in him and if it goes horribly wrong it's his fault not hers I think she's an absolute cow (laughs) to be honest Sort of like, it just goes well, I'll take all the credit, but if it goes badly, I don't have to shoulder any of the blame. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, Harris took over. Harris released this random man, convinced her to trust him, and then Harris didn't trust him afterwards. Like, what the hell? I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't pick up on that, but now that you're saying it, it just seems like such a complete fucking thing that that character like that would do. She's like Umbridge Light. Yeah. Not quite as evil as Umbridge, because there are very few people in the world who could possibly be as evil as Umbridge. Mm-hmm. But she comes fucking close. <laughs> Imagine like fucking what is it? Um, when we eventually get, when we eventually we get him, um, Sutek meets Umbridge. He's just like bitch, you crazy. Um, cool. So we now go on to the villains. Mm-hmm. So we have the seaweed, which sounds like the, like the world's worst fucking supervillain. You know, uh, what does he do? He tangles your legs and gets you slightly damp. <laughs> Um, then we have Robson and Oak and Quill. So, what? No, so Oak and Quill. I just wanted to say, fuck off, you creepy bastards. Oh yeah, creepy one and creepy two. That, that's yeah. it. Like that, the, the, that is, the, that's all that needs to be said about Oak and Quill. Like they, they are just like the, that typical hench in mm. scenarios like this. They have no individual characteristics whatsoever. Bar the fact that one of them looks like Stan Laurel, the other one looks like Oliver Hardy, but they're creepy as fuck. Do what they kind of remind me of without the makeup. The Things beginning with C that you don't like. Things beginning with C that I don't like. Ooh. San, sans Ooh. makeup. Ooh. Oh no. Especially with the weird fucking bouncy music that goes like the bum, burger, burger, burger music when they enter a room. And like, actually, when one of them smiles, he's really creepy. Yep. The tall one. I don't know which one the tall one is. That's Quill. Yeah. There's there's a scene where he smiles and it's really fucking freaky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. no. Could have done without that connection. Thanks. Mm. Especially the and like the actor that plays him, uh, Bill Burge, has got those really, he's got those like big eyes, so mm. that when he does that really weird smile, his eyes kind of bulge, and it's like, Ugh. Mm. yeah. Uh, so creepy one, creepy two. Cool. And so then we have Robson. This type again. <laughs> Pride. <laughs> thy name is Robson. I am the most important person. Only my opinion matters. You're all idiots. I'm getting sick of seeing this character, but I know we're going to see it so much more going forward. Um, if he he's not his own character in this. No. He has absolutely zero um, development. He doesn't even apologize to Van Lutyens at the end. No, it's he apologizes. He says, says good night to everybody. Yeah, and he, that's what it. And like you know, yeah, that's the thing. Like was like you know, he has dinner with the Harrises, and then there's a scene which you know he goes back and he kind of has a bit of banter with the chief, and Price, and Price, yeah. And then it's just like you know, like essentially with Van Lutyens, it's like you know, like you know, you know, fuck you, you prick. Van <laughs> <laughs> Lutyens is working away in the background, doesn't even yeah. talk to him. Like, um, I think uh, he's just this stereotype character. There's very little in it. He's a villain. Because he's full of himself. Yeah. That's it. Uh, and like that thing is like, I was like, well, I get that he has like, years of experience. And you know, that in this scenario, like, you know, it's something to be valued. But Jesus Christ, man, park the ego and tinkle outside the box for fucking one minute, you know? Mm. Um, he's also clearly not a huge people person. No. And I think what is like, the, I, I think if you get onto some bit of a level of relationship with him, like the chief has done, when that person starts saying something to you, you know, you realise that you don't really like fucking people, but you like this guy, you may want to, you know, pump the brakes and actually talk to the guy and listen to what he has to say. 
and like it's this weird kind of fucking spiral where it's like you know his ego feeds his paranoia which feeds his ego which feeds his paranoia and it's all the way down but i will say that i found it very hard to take him seriously because he reminds like, with his hair style he reminds me of Polly walnuts from the sopranos who was just like <laughs> almost like you know imagine like that just typical fucking uh tracksuit wearing fucking modern mafia guy and like that's who you have do you know who his hair reminded me of um the Star Trek Next Generation episode The High Ground where you had the Ansata Terrace and they all had like the black poofy curly hair with the white stripe through it yeah he reminded me of them (laughs) space age poly walnuts (laughs) oh I don't think he's as as um, good a drawer as your man who had the thing for Beverly in that story. Oh, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Finn, that was his name. <laughs> Apropos fuck all. Like. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like fucking <laughs> characters that remind us of other characters. It's like in The Simpsons, you know, people that look like things. <laughs> oh. And so I suppose now we come on to the... Was it the Kelpian nightmare? <laughs> I don't like seaweed in general. No. It ruined one of my favourite beaches, along with jellyfish. Yeah. It ruined one of my favourite beaches. I hated it then, and I hate it now. Okay, my thing with the seaweed, right? What is it? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Is it ever going to come back? How did it do what it did? What was its purpose? We know nothing. I, like, I think... Okay, so we know that, okay, one theory is that it it's one of the, and I actually think that this is a very interesting topic, right? You always hear about the fact that, was it two-thirds of our planet is covered in water? Hmm. And they, but they always say, like, oh, we've only, like, explored, like, 20% of the world's oceans because of fucking pressure. You know, hmm. we can only get down so far. And it's like, and, like, you always see, like, the kind of, the fucking things of, oh, there's, like, you know, huge fucking marine life down there that eats other marine life where there's like starfish with teeth and all this type of shit so there's always a bigger fish yeah there's always a bigger fish so I think as a cryptozoological villain I think it's actually kind of cool and the fact that we know so little about it for me anyway it adds a small bit to the um, the kind of the the terror of it because it's like other than the fact that it wants to be all encompassing like is it sentient to say that you can rationalise with it or you can tame it or you know turn it back or is it just a sentence the whole thing is that it's I must expand yeah I think my problem is we get no answers mm. at all do you know yeah it's possibly this sort of ancient zoological thing that lives at the bottom of the ocean but like that's it do you know like it does big giant tentacle thingies that come out of the water and can swat down fucking helicopters. Like, is this what people thought the Kraken was? Yeah. I, is I this th- the Kraken? Do you know I what think, I mean? I think that's what's kind of meant to be implied in it as well. Yeah, but like, we don't... See, I, It's seaweed. You, see, you need to explain to me why I'm afraid of seaweed. See, I think the f- like we've had two villains of a sort of a parasitic organic nature in terms mm. of in like in the animus from web planet and the great intelligence 
both of which have had like a voice or a kind of a hive mind that communicated with the doctor mm. here we don't have that like i would almost class it with the macro in the fact that it's a sea entity that mm-hmm. has the ability to hypnotize other people yeah. and like, get them on its side or whatever but like at least the macro were aliens they were aliens it was their planet there you go but, like, I, but, like, I, I, but again I think that just kind of it adds like a nice kind of layer of mystery into the whole thing of like you know maybe there are some things on our fucking planet that we will never know because of you know nature pushback type thing you know yeah I think for me it's just like we've gotten like the drilling is going to continue yeah life goes on is this the, fucking thing gonna come back like what the well, shit possibly or, or as we just said there's always a bigger fish or in this case there's always a bigger clump of seaweed <laughs> Yeah, my thing was if you want me to be afraid of seaweed, tell me why. Yeah. <laughs> Just like to get like that fucking kind of you know typical sci-fi thing where it's like you know the waves they come up and they go back and they come up and they go back and then it's just like you know in seaweed it's right in the end and then it comes back and then it's just a question mark or is it? <laughs> um, my one issue with no, I I don't know whether it was actually because uh, it's not stated the A or A in the animation changes but the seaweed drones mm. like I th- like we're given the impression that there's three distinct types of this thing there is like the huge tendrils of seaweed or seaweed clumps there is the possessed people covered in seaweed and then there are these independent seaweed drones I, I think, think the drones are people Okay, fair enough. Because it was just the way that I think they the drones are converted people. Okay, all right. Well, if that's the case, then I'm fine. But if there if there was like possessed people, um, seaweed drones, and then the the weed, I would have much preferred it if they just dropped the the the, the drones because I think the yeah, possessed. No, I, I think I think the drones are converted people. That that was my read on it anyway. Again, not really fucking kind of made clear. Because yeah. I think just like if it was going to be one big seaweed monster that has possessed people, that's yeah, kind of cool. But I don't know, I just have like these independent little kind of pods that come away from it. I'm like, mm, for some reason, I'm not a big fan of that. Mm. Oh, oh, seaweed. <laughs> Never going near you again. So now the seaside ruined for us and hopefully for ye as well. Because if we're going down, we're taking ye down with us. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into the overall discussion. So, Trish, lead us away. This one didn't really do it for me, I'll be honest. I felt myself quite bored. Mm. At one point I stopped, like, literally partway through an episode. Because I realised I'd spent about ten minutes setting up my new Fire TV. As opposed to actually watching the episode. <laughs> just given the fact that I work with those things for a living like <laughs> it doesn't require a whole lot of effort <laughs> um, I think that my problem with it was a few things I don't think our supporting cast was as strong as we've seen in previous stories no. none of them were bad but they weren't as strong hmm. the characters weren't as strong the characters weren't as unique the portrayals weren't as strong I don't think um the Victoria being sidelined again and the scream solution I 
fucking hated both of those things. Do you know? Um, I would rather that Victoria scienced her fucking way out of it. Mm -hmm. Do you know, like, that she screamed in the TARDIS and she realised that her scream did something? Mm -hmm. If you're going to go down the scream route, then have her science it out. Do you know, have her figure it out. And uh, I think I'm sick of the whole base under siege shit. We've had too many of them. I'm fucking bored of it. Like, I, oh. I literally want anything else. You got one more to go. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> like, seriously, I'm fucking sick of it. Like, mm. um, particularly based under siege led by an incompetent scientist. Like, unfortunately, I think I'm just tired of that story. And here it is again. And it's not as good as some of the others. However. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to have very mixed emotions next week. <laughs> However, this story has one huge redeeming factor, mm-hmm. which brought this score up from a, uh, fuck it, skip it, to at least a three, mm-hmm. which is, as a leaving story, it was fantastic. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Everything to do with Victoria's decision to leave the conversations she was trying to have with Jamie and the doctor, the doctor's realisation of what Victoria wanted, Jamie's response to her staying behind, all of that. Like, not just the last ten minutes, but how it was done over the course of the story in its entirety was fantastic. Unfortunately, the rest of the story was just fucking boring. And there's no, unfortunately, there's no way around that for me. So, like, for me, it's a three. It like it was teetering around the two point five mark there for a while because the fact that I did at one point turn it off, and enter my email address and password several times to set up another device to like set up Netflix and Disney Plus and shit. Um, <laughs> like, um, but I think in terms of a leaving story, this is the best we've had since the chase. Oh, big time, big time. I agree. And I think the only reason why the chase is better for me than this in terms of a leaving story is that just the chase was more fun to watch. <laughs> I was going to say, it was because of Look Behind You, Mr. Dracula. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was more fun to watch. The this, this story for me wasn't fun. Um, yeah. I'm delighted that they animated it. Yeah. Um, but... The negatives for me do not outweigh, or the negatives for me far outweigh the positives. Even Victoria sciencing it up, Victoria using hairpins to break in doors, that's all fantastic. But like they had her scream be the thing that solves it, and she doesn't. She's not even the one to fucking figure it out. No, how about you? Um, No, I was going to agree with you. I'm happy they animated it because it creates more revenue for the hopeful eventual animation of Marco Polo. So we can get that that Blu-ray season one box set. Um, So I've got a slightly bit higher. I've got about a 3.25. My viewing experience of this was also kind of weird because we moved in the middle of uh, this. So I watched the first four episodes and then we moved and then I was like, cool, watch episode you know, to watch episode three, or sorry, watch episode five and six. Um, so negatives are that wasn't a huge fan of the like, yeah, Victoria not owning the screaming. Um, I thought that the ending was a small bit rushed. 
you know I think that it could have been a four-parter I think because like mm. I, I, a lot of the um, Robson and Harris stuff is like just going like okay we get it you know you fucking don't trust the wimpy scientist because you're a hard-nosed fucking rigger uh, they think you're a fucking you know egotistical jackass and it's just because like, you're an egotistical, egotistical jackass. jackass yeah and it's just like oh for fuck's sake come on okay we get it like you know skip to the <laughs> was it you know fuckish you know we've done that um so with that i the positives though there's a great performance from our core from the tree mm. i'd agree with you that you know the fucking moon base and web of fear these guys ain't um so yeah they're unfortunately they're a small bit forgettable in this one um, again, the only thing that kind of stands out is fucking uh, Robson's, you know, Paulie Walnut's haircut. Um, I'm a small bit higher because I I really enjoyed the concept of the villain, and I did enjoy the mystery at the end. Is to kind of go look, you know, fuck it. This is an answer we may never find out, and sometimes those are the best mysteries, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, those core three, you know whether the characters are not great you know at certain points you know sidelining and not reading the room or whatever the performances by the three actors is fucking phenomenal particularly Deborah Watling and as a leaving story yeah this is definitely the best since the chase so yeah I'm going with 3.25 cool so this places this story our lowest ranked of the season um, the closest one to this would be Abominable, which you gave 3.75 and I gave 3.5. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, you know, season five, all three and above. Yeah. Which is, as we kind of said, is statistically making it out to be like the strongest season, <laughs> even more so than our beloved season two. Yeah, so our beloved season two has an average a combined average of 4.06 this ooh, this now is combined average 4.04 the wheel in space will be the deciding factor uh so currently it's season one is 4.16 season two is 4.06 season three is 2.75 <laughs> uh season four 3.63 and now season five 4.04 i love it i say our beloved season two yet we rated season one higher <laughs> Well, yeah, but like... I think season two just has our more favourite stories, like, you know. Yeah. But um, season two also had the Space Museum, so, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I need to double-check something, because I think... Uh, yeah, I'm not including the unaired pilot in my season one averages, because technically that's its own thing, and it didn't actually go to air. Yeah. So, I imagine if I included that, it would probably drop the, the points considerably. But I don't include that one. <laughs> yeah, because like we're going, yeah, cool. We're glad that this never fucking saw the light of day. <laughs> cool. So we're one base under siege away from finishing the you know the the season. So what is the story for next week? So on Wednesday of this week we'll have our rambling in the TARDIS for Victoria where we look back at her best and worst moments and then on Monday we're back to our normal format 
I promise. <laughs> no more skipping weeks for a while. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Jesus, it feels like ages since we did a rambling, but then I realised like, we had to take two weeks break for different reasons. You moved house and I got sick. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're back to our normal format next Monday as we join the Doctor and Jamie in the wheel in space. Yeah. Or the base under siege in space, possibly. <laughs> uh, as always, guys, letters on a postcard. And <laughs> we will see you on Wednesday. Bye. Bye.